Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this spring will offer special volunteer vacations designed for visitors to spend a day doing a stewardship project and another heading out on a Tillamook Coast adventure. It's free and a way to have fun and give back, and we'll have more details on this a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks during winter and spring to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to buy firewood from the park or nearby community to avoid bringing invasive species, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're talking to Oregon's state climatologist about why you may want to take advantage of our current mountain snow before we dive into a conversation about how climate change is tweaking what it means to live in Oregon. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in today's episode, we're thrilled to welcome Oregon State climatologist Larry O'Neill to the show. Larry is a source that I talk to a lot about short and longer term weather and climate trends in Oregon because of how much it impacts everything from the outdoors to drought to snow to wildfires and just a whole lot more. In today's episode, we're going to hit on a few topics. The first thing we're going to talk about is the transition out of La Nina weather pattern and into potentially an El Nino condition and what that means for Oregon. There have been some pretty dire predictions about the impact of El Nino, especially for next winter, so we're going to get into that. In the second half, we're going to talk about how Oregon's climate has changed in obvious and subtle ways and what we're expecting in future years and decades. In addition to being the state climatologist, Larry is a professor for the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University, and he joins us today from Corvallis. Hey, Larry, how's it going? Oh, it's great. It's uh, sunny outside, and uh, it's starting to feel a little bit like spring. It is. Fantastic. All right, so we're going to cover a few issues, but I wanted to start with one fairly specific topic because it's gotten a lot of attention. So, This winter, and in fact, earlier this month, I think, we wrapped up a third straight year of La Nina conditions. So can you start with just a short description of what La Nina means and what it has meant for Oregon? Yeah, so La Nina is basically uh, a response of our weather to the temperatures in the ocean near the equator. Why our weather is um, so tied to that is that a lot of the energy from the sun actually gets absorbed at the equator 
that actually drives a lot of our atmospheric circulation. So it drives a lot of the moisture transport, uh, you know, further north and south. And it also uh, impacts the jet stream and how uh, its path and where the storms and all the rain and warm and cold air goes. So uh, typically, historically, um, in La Nina years, the Pacific Northwest tends to be a little, uh, tends to be colder than normal and uh, sometimes uh, wetter than normal. And often that translates into really good snowpack in the, up in the mountains. And so that's kind of the old adage that La Nina years are great for skiing. Um, and uh, that's also very good for our water supply in, uh, you know, in the summers because we get all the snow, you know, snow, the snowpack acts as a natural reservoir for water. And when that melts out uh, slowly in the spring and summer, um, that gives us a really good um, water supply and stream flows and things like that. So for outdoor recreation, it's actually quite a... La Nina's are actually quite great for both skiing and uh, kayaking and water activities. Yeah, and this was a triple dip La Nina, correct? Meaning, like, we've been yeah. in this pattern for the last three years. And overall, I mean, we've had really hot summers, and we'll get into that more. But the snow years have been decent, if not good. Is that generally accurate? Or would you, like, how would you classify the last three years? Because I know there's been some funkiness baked into that La Nina. Yeah. Maybe they weren't the same La Ninas that we remember. So how has it been, you know, in comparison to past La Ninas? Yeah, and that's a great question. And for, so I'll just speak just about Oregon. So um, sometimes people think about Washington and California um, in terms of Oregon as well. But I'll just speak just to Oregon. And in Oregon, we've been, uh, the snowpack has actually been a little bit erratic. And, you know, it hasn't necessarily followed the pattern of, of great snowpack. And so the going back to the 2021, um, we had a great snowpack. It was about, you know, great snowpack at the north, and but it was not very good to the south, uh, south Oregon. You go to 2022, um, we were below average for a lot of the states, and especially in south Oregon. And that was one of the worst drought years that we had because the snowpack was so bad. And then this year, we've had a really good snowpack. Um, I would almost classify as a great snowpack, even though the rest of the state has had below average precipitation. The colder than normal temperatures have preserved what snow did fall in the higher elevations. And so, you know, here we are in March and it's uh, looking really great up mm -hmm. there. So overall, I mean, would, has it like, would you say that, I mean, is your, you're thinking that climate change is, it has impacted the La Nina? Maybe it wasn't as La Nina-ish as it had been in the past, just because it's, it's just like a little bit warmer than it had been? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we do see the impact of climate change in the temperatures, especially the wintertime temperatures that have just been a little bit warmer at all elevations. And so we have seen that the snowpack, even when we've had really good snowpacks the last 10 years, they've tended to melt out you know, one to four weeks earlier in the spring. And that's significant because the, um, you know, it influences the timing of the peak runoff, uh, runoff into the streams and things. And so it shifts our water supply uh, forward a few uh, by, you know, a month or so. And what that means is that there's less irrigation water and less water in general uh, as we head into mid and late summers when we need the water the most. It also means that at higher elevations, the snow is gone earlier. And so the higher elevations dries out earlier. And so that um, often means uh, increased wildfire risk going into August and September. And these are things that these are all things that we've seen pretty consistently happen, even in really good snowpack years.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's been like one of the things that has been really obvious is this snow seems to melt earlier and maybe we're okay for the front side of, of summer. But then by the time we get to the midsummer, late summer and then into fall, it's just really, really dry. But OK, yeah. so as we as we mentioned, you know, changes on the horizon. We we're talking about the last three years. But earlier this month, we officially left La Nina and are neutral right now, but there's signs we're going to head into El Nino. And there have been pretty dire predictions about what that means, uh, particularly for warmer than normal temperatures, especially in winter. So can you kind of, you know, you talked about La Nina, but what does El Nino mean and why are we concerned about it or why are we seeing that concerning reporting about it? Yeah, and that's a great question. The so uh, La Nina means colder than normal water in the tropics, and El Nino is the opposite of that, where there's warmer than normal water in the tropics. And one significant, one um, really significant uh, difference there is that the ocean actually stores a lot of the energy from the sun, and it also stores a lot of the energy from greenhouse gases, and so it makes the ocean warmer. And so during El Nino's, we actually get a large release of heat from the ocean into the atmosphere. And so that means during... Or El Ninos, uh, the global temperature is actually well above normal. And this is coinciding on this background uh, global warming condition where temperatures are, the average temperatures are getting warmer every year. And so the concern here is that this El Nino will be much warmer than El Ninos we've experienced in the past. And so one, El, uh, the last really strong El Nino we had was in 2015. And that's when Oregon set its all-time temper uh, annual temperature record during that year. And so we're uh, very concerned that, um, you know, given the, the past couple years, we've been in La Nina, it's supposed to have been colder than normal, but it was actually much warmer than normal. So we're, um, so we're very concerned that this year will turn out to be, um, you know, much warmer than uh, normal, even much warmer the last couple of years. Yeah, 2015 is the year that... I mean, that, I, as a reporter, like that year just grabbed me by the neck because it was so shockingly different than anything I feel like we've experienced. Um, maybe it had been close in years, but I mean, 2015, there was literally like no snow in the mountains, like throughout the winter, maybe a little bit. Like there was a lake at Hoodoo Ski Area. The ski bowl just had a giant lake out there. It was one of the most bizarre years that I've ever remembered. So that was the last time we had an El Nino like this. Like is the in the coming year, are we expecting like, is there um, a strength of El Ninos that you can observe and say, this is going to be a stronger El Nino similar to 2015? Like, is that what we're expecting in this coming year? Um, we don't actually, so the uh, forecasts right now are for about a 60% chance of developing uh, El Nino conditions going into the fall. Um, this summer, we actually expect that it's, that the, uh, um, we'll stay in this inch zone neutral state. So, you know, we don't expect that even if El Nino develops this summer, it won't be very strong. But there are some models that suggest next winter an El Nino, a very strong El Nino, will, or a strong El Nino will develop. You know, we don't expect any immediate concerns and maybe not um, much impact for the summer. But uh, definitely going into next fall or winter, I think, is, is going to be uh, the most impactful time. And so the concern there would be a snowpack, you know, water and just like it just being warmer, um, a lot warmer Absolutely. than it would have been and similar to 2015. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I should mention that the uh, El Nino and La Nina uh, effects on our weather in the Pacific Northwest, uh, we tend to get a uh, more consistent signal in the temperatures rather than precipitation. We've had El Ninos in the past. Actually, 2015 was a good case. We actually had 
average to above average precipitation for a lot of Oregon. It was just too warm for the snow to um, stick around. Yeah, I remember that. We would constantly get these like these rain events that would come in and it was almost like you'd watch it and you'd look at the temperature and you're just like, oh, no, oh no, because it would just it would it couldn't get below freezing. And so nothing turned into snow. And it was obviously really frustrating to ski areas um, because they would hold out hope that maybe it would finally turn into snow and it just never, never did. And a lot of them weren't able to open or were open for just a couple days. It was it was pretty striking. So I guess a selfish takeaway is that if you love skiing, you should take advantage of this really nice snowpack out there because there's decent odds that next winter won't be very good snow wise. Like, is that fair? Or is that pushing it too far? No, I think that's absolutely fair. Uh, get your turns in now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So stepping back a little and looking at the wider playing field, do we have a handle on the impact climate change is having on La Nina and El Nino patterns? Like we've talked about it kind of amplifying things, at least on the warmer end, like putting the droughts on steroids or the hotter temperatures on steroids. But is it having any like direct impact on those two patterns when they show up, how powerful they show up and stuff like that? So, the, you know, there's some debate about in the scientific community on how climate change is affecting the ENSO cycle in general. So the uh, patterns of El Nino and La Nina, and then also how they impact our weather. And right now, uh, you know, we just don't have long enough data records to really be confident that we know that what's happened in La Nina and El Nino years in the past uh, are going to continue into the future. But one thing is certain is that the uh, climate change is starting to make our weather uh, more uh, unpredictable, um, a little bit uh, less certain. So we're less able to use our knowledge of historical conditions to forecast or predict the future or to know what's what's happening in there. And that's especially true for precipitation, is that our precipitation has gotten much more uh, erratic uh, between seasons. You know, and we could see this the last two years. Uh, spring 2021 was the driest in Oregon's uh, recorded history. And then spring 2022 was the wettest. And uh, those, there was, those were both similar La Nina conditions, uh, but very different outcomes mm-hmm. during that. And so we kind of expect that when we do go into drought periods, because of the warmer temperatures and there's going to be more evaporation, uh, what water we do get from precipitation will go less far in meeting our water needs All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to talk about the longer-term trends that Oregon has seen and what we're expecting in the future. So stay with us. I'm Sarah Melton with the American Forest Resource Council. I love the outdoors and exploring the forests near my hometown. My job is to protect our forests and wildlife. I work to defend forest management projects in the courtroom and to support the workers and agencies who steward our forests and public lands. Good forest management based on the best science keeps our forests healthy, improves wildlife habitat, keeps our air and water clean, and gives us the sustainable timber we need for renewable and climate-friendly wood products. AFRC is proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. 
Beginning in the spring of 2023, the Tillamook Coast Visitors Association is excited to announce a volunteer vacation program that will bring groups from inside or outside Tillamook County to lend a hand in stewardship programs while also having a good time. One example of an itinerary would be spending one day clearing invasive brush or working on a hiking trail, while the next day could include a guided hike or kayak trip. The type of activity that highlights the Tillamook area and shows why doing stewardship projects is so important. All meals and transportation are included for the groups that take part, which will ideally be between 8 and 12 people. The experience is free for those who take part. The program is designed to offer participants the opportunity to give back to our popular area, while also learning the vital role stewardship plays in preserving our natural places. The program website will launch in March, so stay tuned for that. But if you want more information or to sign up early, contact Dan Hag, and you can reach him at dan at tillamookcoast, all one word, dot com. All right, welcome back. Okay, well, one story that Larry helped me write the last two years has been an overarching look at the state's temperature compared to historical records, and then some more specific observations about different locations across Oregon. So most recently, we reported that this past year, 2022, was the 10th hottest year statewide in records going back to the 1890s. That continued a string of historically hot years. In fact, of the 13 hottest years recorded in Oregon, Nine have come since 2000 and seven have come since 2010. So those are the facts. But one thing that stuck out to me that you pointed out is that Oregon barely ever has cold years anymore. Like it's only happened, I think, three times since the 1980s. And I think you you mentioned that, you know, of the last 37 years, 34 of them have been warmer than average. So I guess the question is, has climate change locked us into the point where it's just really difficult to have a cool year? Like, do you need five things to go right to get a cool year at this point? Yeah, it's uh, exactly, you know, it's just this slow background warming of, and this is happening, you know, basically most places on earth is that we're having these, just this slow warming trends. We don't necessarily expect that we'll ever get back to like having a very cold year before, like we had in the fifties or in the seventies here in Oregon. And um, so we are pretty locked into that until we reduce the, our concentrations of greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. That said, I mean, you look at the numbers and, you know, I hear, I hear this a lot, you know, even last year, like, you know, it was the 10th warmest year on record, but it was only like 1.7 degrees warmer than an average yeah. Oregon year. So that's not, that's warmer, but it also doesn't seem like a big deal. A couple degrees here and there. What's the big deal? So why is a few degrees impactful? Because it seems easy to say, you know, big deal. Like I like it being a little bit warmer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And you could think about these uh, when back in the 1930s, when global warming was in climate change, you know, this link between greenhouse get carbon dioxide and um, Earth's temperature came to being. There was this very famous cartoon of, you know, the, you know, northern, you know, people in northern latitudes were able to like sunbathe and grow crops where they couldn't before because it was too cold and things like that. And so there was this idea that actually climate change might actually be good for um, society because, you know, we're, you know, there'll be less cold freezing um, areas and more warmer areas. And so people can, you know, take advantage of that. And it turns out that um, as we 
uh, increasing our greenhouse gas em emissions like this, we're running a, a kind of a poorly designed science experiment where we're warming the planet and seeing how it affects uh, society and and also um, our natural systems on Earth. And it turns out that um, so we're running this experiment and we're observing the impacts. And it, and it turns out that we're we're seeing that there's a lot of adverse impacts on society. These are things that maybe we didn't know that uh, you know 1.7 degrees or two degrees would, you know, on an average annual average basis would actually be really impactful. But um, as we see that you know there's warmer winters, less snowpack, uh, earlier meltouts, so that really impacts our water supply and uh, recreation, and also affects our wildfire risk in a higher latitude or in higher elevations. There's more invasive species in Oregon. Um, cheatgrass is an example. But there are other uh, types of invasive species, both aquatic and um, and grasses and tree and shrubs and things like that, uh, that increase our fire risk and also become a nuisance. Uh, we have warmer stream flows, so more harmful algal blooms, which can cause uh, more issues with water quality for our municipal and irrigation water supplies. There's more heat stress on aquatic species in the rivers because of that, and uh, the more variable water supply. You know, when we have low stream flow years, they're they're typically lower than they have been before, and that can concentrate pollutants in the waterways. So, you know, there's more concentration, you know, higher concentrations of harmful um, toxins in our, our waterways. Uh, we also are observing that we're getting more heat waves and heat heat stress, um, as we've seen the last couple of years during the summer. Um, heat stress is a, a, a very uh, strong health risk for the public health risk for the populations. Uh, it, we're getting more frequent, severe, and impactful droughts, and uh, so this has really affected um, agricultural and livestock producers, and, um, and and has a whole host of other adverse impacts. You know, we're we have declining groundwater supplies in a lot of the state, especially uh, southern Oregon right now. So we've heard about Lake Abert is drying up, um, some of the inland um, lakes in the Intermountain West, so the Great Salt Lake, things like that, and that's all in response to you know, not enough precipitation su uh, supply into the water, into our waterways, but also increased groundwater pumping because, you know, people are, are trying to, you know, produce crops and things without precipitation. So they pump it out, the water out of the ground. Uh, so, yeah, the, I think that's kind of a, an overview of, of how the observed impacts that we're seeing from our poorly designed science experiment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, a few years ago, you know, cause you, you've mentioned water uh, a number of times and obviously that's a, a major part of Oregon. Well, really anywhere. But I remember you talking about, you know, in the climate models, as you play this forward, Oregon continues to get warmer, but still has a similar amount of rainfall. So can you kind of parse that out a little bit, you know, you know, and that's, that's shown up in some of the recent stuff, like where the statewide, rainfall hasn't seemed to fluctuate in the same way as the temperature. It seemed closer to average, um, even as things have gotten warmer. So what are we generally expecting in, in Oregon as, as we go forward? Yeah. So the, um, the, basically as the, the atmosphere warms, it, it has a higher, um, it can hold more water vapor. And what that basically means is that there's more water vapor available to, you know, condense into clouds and form precipitation. And so just because of that, we're expecting that, you know, there's going to be either the same amount of precipitation or a little bit more on a globally average basis. So when you go down to a regional scale um, to the Pacific Northwest or to Oregon, the climate model projections right now are um, that 
will probably have about the same amount when you average over maybe a decade or two, the same amount of rain. But the um, swings between wet and dry years will be greater. And so we expect that the dry years will be drier and then the wet years will be wetter. And what that means is that there's going to be an increased amount of uh, uh, impacts on both ends. So just like it's been very dry the last few years, you know, we will inevitably go into a cycle where we get much more rain than we need and, and there'll be more flooding concerns and things like that. And then, you know, inevitably, inevitably we'll go into a drought year where things will just be drier than they have before. So we expect bigger swings between wet and dry years. One thing you mentioned a few years ago that has stuck with me as like a very good but super simple way of describing it is that Oregon is starting to feel more like California than Washington. Do you still feel like that's a good way of describing it in like in super simple terms? I think so. Yeah. So I, I actually in the 90s, I grew up in Sacramento in northern, you know, northern or central California. And um, while we're not there yet, like Oregon is not quite there yet, but we are starting to feel more like maybe you know, far Northern California from Redding North, something like that. Um, and, you know, in terms of both of our temperatures and precipitation variability, in another 30 or 40 years, you know, someplace like um, Corvallis here will start to feel a lot more like Sacramento. So one thing to, to consider is that Oregon is a pretty different state topographically. You know, not all places have been impacted equally, like the Oregon coast sticks out because especially lately during more recent summers, it hasn't been so much hotter compared to the Willamette Valley and especially Eastern Oregon, um, you know, where you've seen, you know, you get east of the Cascades, it's been really hot, really dry. You get over to the coast and it's basically pretty close to average. So do you expect that to eventually change or is the coast just kind of buffered because it's right next to the ocean and the farther you get to the east, the more you're seeing the impact? That's exactly right. Is the coast is moderated a lot by the ocean temperatures and so the ocean is expected to warm, um, but uh, it's actually a little bit uncertain how the water very close to the coast, within about 50 miles or so, the coast will change. There is some indication that maybe the wind patterns will change in such a way that it will keep the, the, that water near the coast um, about the same temperature or maybe even slightly cooler. And so that can help moderate the impacts of the atmosphere warming on those coastal communities. Um, but... Um, that's the confidence in that is not very high right now. You know, we see someplace like Seattle actually is, you know, on the Puget Sound. And, you know, if you look at the long-term uh, monitoring stations, they're just right around Seattle or the Puget Sound area. And they haven't warmed as much as when you go into a station, um, stations inland or to the east of the Cascades. And so the climate models are very consistent, all point to the fact that the inland areas will warm much more than in the places near the coast. Well, that's just, it's been so striking. I mean, you know, when we get into these heat waves during the middle of summer, everybody just wants to go to Newport because it'll be, you know, over a hundred degrees in Salem. And then you look over at Newport and it's like 63 or something like that. And so I guess the, the idea here is buy some real estate in, uh, in Newport or along the Oregon yeah. coast. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, um, I think people are doing that. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. No, I well, It drives me crazy. There is like a couple houses I always thought about, you know, investing in the coast. And I was like, ah, you know, no, it's all rainy out here. And yeah, it turns out that might be a good thing long term. Anyway, so one of the things that goes along with that is I remember, you know, everybody remembers the heat, dome. Yeah. you know, that record setting 117 degrees in the Willamette Valley. Is that still viewed as a totally freak occurrence? Because that's kind of how it was described when it was happening. 
Or will situations like that become increasingly possible as we head out 5, 10, 15 years? Like, is that totally abnormal or is that like now within the sphere of possibility? Yeah. So a couple of years now that we were a couple of years away from the event and people have been able to study some of it more. Um, I think there's a general growing consensus is that it was the combination of um, just a, a rare combination of a couple different elements that came together at once. So that's not necessarily, you know, so climate change did contribute to it, but not, it may not have caused it or um, been like an overriding factor in the generation of the heat dome. With that said, we do expect heat waves to increase in frequency and intensity going forward. And we actually have seen that the last, uh, you know, last summer. Uh, last summer was just as warm as, a, as the summer before. And even though it, we didn't have the high impact event like the heat dome last summer, the nights were warmer. The days were just a little bit warmer, but it was just consistently warm. It's always consistently in the low to mid 90s. And um, that is more of what we expect from uh, climate change is just that the summers are a little bit longer, the nights are warmer, the days are warmer, but it's not necessarily going to be, you know, 116, 117 degrees a couple times a, a summer. So we're not heading for 120 degrees. We're just heading for like, you know, a super long string of 90 degree days yeah. uh, where 90 starts to feel like 80 used to feel. Yeah, like. that's exactly right. And, but that doesn't mean we won't get, you know, these uh, some of these uh, freak occurrences or, you know, by the, you know, in 30 or 40 years, actually in 30 or 40 years, the climate models are suggesting that, you know, we'll every summer we'll start to get a 105 or 110 degree day or, you know, many summers will be like that. So, you know, it, it will be, we, we will have um, these, you know, high impact heat events, but we don't necessarily expect them to happen all the time now. Well, big picture, um, anything else that, that sticks out? We've covered, you know, a lot of ground from wildfires to droughts to just hotter days, less snow. I mean, anything else that sticks out to you as far as what to expect as we go forward or even just, you know, into next year? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, we we did touch on this about uh, it'll be very interesting to see how this uh, if we do go into an El Nino episode, how it, it plays out, um, because you know, it has a potential if we get into a, a moderate or strong El Nino, you know, it has a potential to be, you know, an incredibly warm year. So that's something that we'll be looking at closely. But um, one of the things that we, actually I spent a lot of time looking at is just the impacts of, um, you know, climate variability and change on, you know, something as um, benign sounding as soil moisture. And in Oregon, well, and everywhere, the amount of moisture in the soil really has a big impact on our stream flows, on our health of the vegetation, our ability to grow crops and raise livestock, and you know, our lake levels, and also our wildfire risk. And the you know, very consistent signal from climate change that we expect is that just drier soils year round. And so even though uh, this year is a good example, even though the snowpack is doing quite well up in the Cascades, um, we actually have quite a few soil monitoring sites at the snowtel stations that are um, at or near record low soil moisture content for this time of year. And that's just a really worrying signal, even though, um, you know, even though we have a good snowpack, the, you know, it's not, we're not able to recharge our groundwater supplies uh, very well from a good snowpack year. One thing that I'm curious about in the long term, and this will probably be my last question for you, is... 
I mean, there's been a lot of talk about reducing greenhouse gases and whether we're able to do that or not. But I mean, are we baked into a level of warming for a while at this point? Like even if we threw on the brakes, um, I mean, wouldn't it take a while to see the impact of that? Yes. Um, even if we were to, um, you know, completely go to zero carbon emission or, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, it would take about 15 or 20 years for us to see the um, global average temperature drop to maybe the levels that we've seen since the nine, you know, in the nineties or eighties or something like that. So there is some, um, and we, you know, there's a tech, you know, there's a technical term for it. It's a little bit of inertia in the system. So it just means that, you know, mm-hmm. we're going, the temperatures are warming. And so it's going to just take a while for that warming to kind of slow down and stop and start to cool again. And, you know, what the good news is, so one of the reasons for that is that carbon dioxide, which is the uh, predominant greenhouse gas that's causing our warming, um, it stays in the air for up to 100 years on average. And so, you know, the natural processes that remove carbon dioxide, the atmosphere are pretty slow. And so even if we were to stop our emission of that, the concentrations are already very large in the atmosphere. But with that said, is that um, there is a greenhouse gas that contributes significantly to the warming that actually um, gets out of the atmosphere pretty quick, and that's methane. So methane is uh, responsible for about 25% of the you know average temperature rise that we're experiencing from global warming, but it has a residence time in the atmosphere of about 20 to 25 years. And so if we can reduce our methane emissions, for, we can actually see a response within our lifetimes in the atmosphere. We often think of um, methane uh, emission reductions as being kind of a low-hanging fruit in this um, you know, in our response to climate change, uh, mitigation scenario for climate change. And so it would be, uh, you know, if, if we want kind of a, a fairly good bang for our buck in, in trying to mitigate uh, climate change, it would be to reduce uh, methane emissions. I mean, what's your outlook? Is there, is there any positive things that we can look at as far as, as progress or I'm, I, I mean, does it have to be a lot more? I guess, you know, a lot of the, the conversation around climate changes is invariably pretty negative. Anything positive that, that you can hang your hat on? Yeah. So, um, you know, we grew up kind of, uh, back in the you know early two thousands and we were, you know, in the early two thousands, we started to know, you know, we started to see the, that climate change was happening. It was it was becoming obvious in the, our instrumented data records. So we were seeing it in observations and we were starting to see the adverse impacts from that. And at that time, um, you know, we didn't, you know, electric cars weren't really a thing. You know, they were kind of, uh, you know, a novelty and, you know, there wasn't, you know, a real good path forward. And I remember thinking at that time, the way uh, the world was structured was that, you know, fossil fuels were, you know, there was, there didn't seem to be a path forward to kind of moving beyond that. And right now I see that um, there's a lot of progress being made. So now you can go get electric cars. Um, the technology is there that it actually, you know, over a lifetime of the car, you're reducing emissions by a substantial amount. It isn't a lot, um, but it is, it is something. We actually now see that there's a path forward that in 10 or 20 years, uh, there's a lot of momentum for progress. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of naysayers and, and, you know, people who kind of view that as, you know, too little, too late or something like that. But um, compared to where we were at 20 years ago, I think there's, um, there's definitely a, a good path forward. And I think just we need to stay the course. And, um, you know, that 
no sci no credible scientist sees an extinction scenario in the future for you know at least for the next 50 years other than maybe the asteroid or something but at least from climate change i think we you know uh you know a lot of what we're uh, we need to focus on our adaptation scenarios so adapting to the changes that we see and uh, and also expect but at the same time you know there is um you know, I, I think there is optimism for, uh, you know, at least some mitigation scenarios, even though sometimes when you, you, you see some of the headlines and things like that, it doesn't always fill you with a lot of optimism. And so that path isn't, is going to be bumpy, but I think over time, you know, I really feel like in 20 years, by the time I retire, you know, in 25 years, that we'll be a lot better off than, you know, we'll have made a lot of, a lot more progress. So, and yeah. And so that, I, I see some optimism in that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So there's there's a path forward. It's just a matter of, of staying on the path or maybe, you know, sprinting forward. on. Yeah. The path. And we do need to move quicker, obviously. But there's a real danger that, you know, we start to make some progress and then, you know, there's something political happens or something happens that just shuts it down, um, shuts that mm -hmm. path forward down. And we just have to make sure that we kind of have a resilient, um, you know, a resiliency in our approach that even though we have some setbacks, for that, you know, if we have some setbacks that we can persevere through them and, and just keep pushing forward so that the next generation, you know, can build on that progress. All right. Well, I've been talking to Larry O'Neill, the Oregon State climatologist, and he is based at Oregon State University in Corvallis. Thanks so much for taking the time, Larry. Thank you very much. That's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.